Welcome to the CUNY Lecture Series. In this edition, what's a Bitcoin? The cybercurrency created in 2009 as a plaything for hackers will be used by governments by 2023 and consumers by 2027, by some estimates. Nathaniel Popper, author of Digital Gold, Bitcoin and the Inside Story of the Misfits and Millionaires Trying to Reinvent Money, says this to a Baruch audience. The digital dough wasn't worth anything until 2011, adds Popper, when it was adapted by users of the now defunct Silk Road website to buy and sell heroin and marijuana without the transactions being trackable. Bitcoins, which exist as entries on a digital ledger, had an exchange rate value of more than $500 in September 2016. Most of the general public still thinks of this as some sort of weird Tamagotchi pet or pet rock or something, but this is something that basically every Wall Street bank has a team working on right now, says Popper. I guess I'll start by just pointing to a recent survey that the World Economic Forum did. This is the Davos group, brings together all these executives, and they came out with these pretty striking findings from their uh, executives that the tipping point for when... Bitcoin and its underlying technology are going to be used by governments around the world is 2023. And the tipping point for when consumers will be using Bitcoin in a regular way is 2027. Um, so you have at least uh, 11 years to get ready for this. Um, but um, I, I say that uh, not because I assume that the prediction is true, um, but because it tells you sort of how seriously serious people are about Bitcoin these days. Um, and Bitcoin and um, the underlying technology, which is called the blockchain, which I'll talk about. But I think most of the general public still thinks of this as some weird, you know, Tamagotchi pet or pet rock or something. But this is something that basically every Wall Street bank has a team working on right now. And, and I can talk more about why that is. But it's, it is a, it's something that people are spending. I mean, there's already been over a billion dollars of investments from Silicon Valley and Wall Street into this technology. And I start there just because it's interesting and, and my whole project is to think about how you get there from Bitcoin's beginnings, which were in late 2008, early 2009, when this was just a proposal put up on some, you know, tiny email list for cryptographers, a proposal that was turned into software within a few months and sort of mailed around. It was open source software and people started using it. But for the first two years of its existence, it was worth nothing. Um, today, a Bitcoin, a single Bitcoin is worth something around $300. It's actually gone up a lot in the last week or two for reasons that are somewhat unclear. But so you, you went from something that was worth nothing to an economy that's now, you know, six, seven billion dollars. And my project, as I mentioned, has been to kind of look at the story of how this happened, how this thing turned from a nothing that was kind of a plaything of hackers to something that Wall Street banks are taking seriously. And, and for me, a lot of conversations about Bitcoin pretty quickly get bogged down in the sort of technical aspects of what it is and how it works. And that might be inevitable, and I might actually be there in 10 minutes. You can, I'll, I'll try to wake you up if I do end up there. But to me, what's always been interesting is the people, because Bitcoin, what it set out to be, was a new currency, a new kind of money, a new kind of digital money. 
And money, I think the sort of most important thing to understand is, is that money is essentially social technology. Um, so, so Bitcoin is you know, set out to be a virtual currency, a new kind of money. And so what it needed to succeed was for people to want it, for people to think it was going to be worth something, for people holding it to think that they would be able to do something with it in two weeks or four weeks or six weeks. Um, you know, just to, to start with the idea that Bitcoin is not, there is no physical thing that is a Bitcoin. It is a ledger on, um, on a computer database, essentially, that says you own a Bitcoin. And so, you know, what is the intrinsic value of that? The intrinsic value of that is that you think that somebody else is going to take this thing at some point in the future. Um, the other, uh, I think, sort of necessary precursor to understanding money and to understanding dollars um, or, or any currency is that you have to think it's scarce and that there aren't just going to be an unlimited number of them floating around in the world available for anyone who wants them. Um, obviously, the Federal Reserve here has printed a lot of dollars in recent years, but I don't know about you, but to me, I still cannot get as many dollars as I want. They are a limited commodity, and I can only get a certain number of them. Um, and Bitcoins operate in the same way. One of the basic rules with Bitcoin from the very beginning was there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoins in the world. And that sounds like a lot, but obviously there's a lot more than $21 million in the world. And that sense of a limit of scarcity with Bitcoin is one of the things that was really has been really important in making people think, okay, if I own one of these, there aren't just going to be an unlimited number of other Bitcoins in the world. There's only going to be 21 million. And so maybe this will, this scarce resource will be worth something in a month, um, two months, six months. And so again, this is a story about people. It's a social technology. And so to understand what has happened with Bitcoin and where it came from, you have to understand the people who began using this and to think about why they wanted to use this and what they wanted to do with it. And that is, but I'm going to actually start here with a simpler place because I think, I imagine the, the explanations I've given so far do not explain what Bitcoin is. You are probably still all in the dark. I know for me, I was six months into writing this book, I was still figuring out how this thing worked and how it could be that a digital, uh, something on a digital ledger somewhere could be worth actual money and that you couldn't just make endless numbers of them. The way it works is very complicated and you're probably not going to leave tonight understanding it. But I think to, to maybe give us a starting point, I'm going to maybe spend uh, a good part of the time tonight actually just talking about the first day of Bitcoin when there were really just two people using it. And this was in January 2009. And at that point, this was about four months after the idea of Bitcoin had first been floated on this cryptography list. Uh, it, the email describing it had been written by somebody named Satoshi Nakamoto, somebody who, uh, if you had Googled him at the time, you wouldn't really come up with much in, in that would, you know, a, a likely candidate. Nobody knew who this Satoshi Nakamoto was. Nobody had met him before. But this email came out into this listserv describing this thing called Bitcoin. And um, a few months later, he coded up some uh, a basic prototype and sent it to some of the other people on the list who'd expressed interest in this. And those people, uh, a lot of them 
came, grew out of a, a, a movement in the 1990s, uh, early online community known as the cypherpunks, uh, a really interesting social movement in, the U in U.S. history. It was kind of a lot of folks who were libertarians out in the tech community who were scared about the government uh, tracking their movements. So think, you know, Edward Snowden, uh, WikiLeaks, um, this, this kind of group. They were meeting online and talking about how easy it was for the government to track their every movement and, and thinking about ways to fight back against that in the way that Edward Snowden has. And from the beginning with the cypherpunks, they quickly realized that if we're worried about people tracking us, one of the most sort of dangerous technologies is our credit card or any kind of digital money system, right? Because anytime you spend money online or use your credit card, you're leaving a trace of where you were that the government can easily access. Visa has it, Amex has it, your bank has it. All the bank has, to, all the government has to do is ask the the uh, the bank for that information. Where was he today? And they can show. Okay, he went to Hale and Hardy for lunch, and then afterwards he went and got a coffee here. And this scared the hell out of the cypherpunks. They hated the notion that money, um, once it once it went online, left this this trace of, of you everywhere you went. And they realized this is very different than cash. Cash, you can give somebody a $20 bill and nobody knows that you spent that $20 bill. And so the cypherpunks began thinking about, okay, how do we bring that quality of cash into the digital world? If we're going to live our lives online and if we're going to use credit cards, how can we have a digital cash that we can spend uh, you know, without using normal cash that we can spend online and not leave a, a trace of ourselves everywhere we go. And um, so those were the early guys who took an interest in Bitcoin when Satoshi Nakamoto put this idea up on this list. And um, in January of 2009, um, Satoshi sent the first Bitcoin software version 0.1, I think it was, to all the people who'd expressed an interest. And um, by that point, a lot of people had already lost uh, interest. They thought, this is never going to work. This is silly. There are so many problems with this. The securities, you know, how are you going to ensure that somebody can actually hold on to their Bitcoins if they get them? Why will they be worth anything? But there was a guy out in California who lived in Santa Barbara named Hal Finney, who had been involved in the cypherpunks. And he really liked this idea. Um, and so that first day that the software got sent out, Hal downloaded it. It was actually his son's birthday that day, but he was so excited about this. He'd been sort of thinking about this idea of digital money for two decades. He was so excited about it that he basically took a break from his son's birthday, downloaded this Bitcoin version 0.1 on his computer. And what that software did when he downloaded it was, the first thing it did was look out and try to communicate and try to find on the internet anybody else that was running this software. And so the first thing that Bitcoin does once it gets on your computer is it finds anybody else who's using the software. And at that point, that was basically Hal's computer and Satoshi Nakamoto's computers. And so they connected on the internet. I think there was actually a kind of chat room where you could find other people who were running the software. And uh, those two computers connected and started communicating. Um, you know, so, so now these two computers are the Bitcoin network. And if anybody else joins, they join the same thing. And then these three computers are, um, are communicating. 
Now, at this point in time, this is the first day of Bitcoin, there are, let's say, zero Bitcoins out in the world. Bitcoin just started existing. Um, but on that, that software described how new Bitcoins would come into existence. And it wasn't just that Satoshi had them on his computer and he'd give them away. Um, the way it happened was you start from zero and you enter into a, you start from zero on January 2009. Right now there are 15 million Bitcoins in the world. But that was the first day, so there were no Bitcoins. Um, but the software explained how new Bitcoins will be created, how the first 50 and then the first 100 and then until you get to now 13 million. The software said whoever's on the network um, will enter into a computational race, essentially. And whoever's computer solves the compute or, or, or wins that computational race, you get the first bundle of Bitcoins. You get the first 50 Bitcoins. And the nice thing about this race is that both sides can tell whether the other person won. So they both look, and if Hal's computer wins, they know, oh, okay, Hal won the race. He gets the Bitcoins. And if Satoshi's computer wins, they know Satoshi's computer gets the new Bitcoins. And so they're racing. And the, the program that they both downloaded, again, the program that they both downloaded gives all the rules for how this is going to work. And so uh, the, the, the computational race is in there. And the first bundles of Bitcoin are actually all won by Satoshi's computer because he has much faster computers. Um, not, not because he owns Bitcoin, just his computer is faster at winning this race that's in the program. And so he's winning the new Bitcoin, so he's getting 50. Each, each time he wins a race, he gets 50. And then the race starts again. And he gets another 50 if he wins again. And then the race starts again, and he gets another 50. And then one time, Hal's computer wins. And he gets 50. And, um, and, and the, the program is set up so that somebody's supposed to win every 10 minutes or so. It's somewhat arbitrary. But if somebody's winning more frequently than every 10 minutes, if somebody's computer gets really fast and they're winning every two minutes, then the problem gets harder until it takes 10 minutes again. And so you can see that Bitcoins are going to be released in a regular fashion, 50 Bitcoins every 10 minutes. You can figure it out. Over the course of a day, that's going to be, I think, 2,700. I don't know why I don't know that. But it's going to be something like 2,700 Bitcoins every day. So day one, at the end of it, presumably there's going to be 2,700 Bitcoins. And they will, be, they will have been won by various people who are on this network. Whoever is racing and winning this computational race, they will get these Bitcoins. And so that is basically all that's happening. Some, you're racing and they're getting Bitcoins. And now the other kind of rub, I'm sure I've probably already lost you, but just stick with me here and we'll, we'll be able to kind of work through this uh, a couple more times. But I want to just take it you know, down to these two people there in the first day, because now there's millions of people. But those two people, they were racing. And what does it mean to get Bitcoins, right? They're not a physical thing. Um, so you win 50 Bitcoins. What does that mean? Does somebody hand you a piece of paper? No. Part of this program says that each computer that's on the network is going to keep a record of everything that happens on the network. So when Hal wins the race and gets 50 Bitcoins, both computers, Hal's computer and Satoshi's computer, writes down on that ledger, Hal won 50 Bitcoins at this time. Hal writes that on his computer too. So they both have the exact same record of what's been happening, and they both know 
Satoshi won the first 10, Hal won the next one, and this ledger is kept on both of their computers. And if more people join, they will immediately download that history and see, okay, Satoshi won the first one, Hal won the 10th one, and they both have this many Bitcoins. So they have this record, a ledger, of what happened in Bitcoin. And that ledger is actually the most sort of sophisticated and interesting part of Bitcoin. Um, because that ledger is essentially a bank ledger for Bitcoin, right? The, the ledger tells you who owns what. Um, that's what a bank ledger does, right? JP Morgan, when you spend money, they write, okay, so-and-so, $50 out of their account and went over here. They're keeping the ledger. In Bitcoin, though, there's no central person keeping the ledger. Everybody's keeping it. Satoshi's keeping it. Hal's keeping it. So, and if a new person joins, they're helping to keep it. And they all have this record. Um, and, it, and it's the fact that they're all keeping that record, which is called, to, just to throw another uh, confusing element in there, that record is, is referred to as the blockchain. Um, because everybody is keeping the record, it makes it harder for anybody to lie, to come in and say, oh, I have a million Bitcoins. If you come in and say, I have a million Bitcoins, everybody checks their records and says, no, you don't. I can see. I have a record of everything that's ever happened, and you don't have 50 Bitcoins. So this, this is kind of the explanation of, I think, the, the, the most difficult thing for a lot of people to understand about Bitcoin, which is, why can't I just come in and say I have a million Bitcoins? Or why can't Satoshi just say, oh, I have twice as many Bitcoins as I used to have? The reason is because everybody has the record. Everybody has the blockchain on their computer. And so everybody is constantly checking. If somebody tries to spend Bitcoins, everybody checks their record and says, do they have those to spend? And if, if most of the people on the network say, no, my record says you don't have that, that person is just ignored. It's as if they don't exist. So at the base of this, this is an online network in which everybody is communicating and everybody is keeping everybody else honest. And you have to follow, your computer has to follow the rules in the Bitcoin software. And if you start not following the rules, if you start suddenly giving yourself Bitcoins or spending Bitcoins you don't have, you're out of the network. You no longer are in the network. You, your Bitcoins are no longer acknowledged by anybody else because you're not following the rules. So, so that is day one. On day one, you had these new Bitcoins being assigned to the various people on the network and everybody writing down the records of what was happening. Now, I'll just throw one more element on that first day, which isn't, I think, terribly confusing, and that's, okay, once you have them, what do you do with them? Well... When you win those Bitcoins, you have them in your wallet. You have them in your Bitcoin wallet. They're, you have an address. Everybody has it on their records. Okay, Hal has 50 Bitcoins. Um, you can then, if you, if you have, the, have, uh, have that wallet, you can send those Bitcoins you have to anybody else. Now, on that first day, the only person you could send it to was Satoshi. So Hal actually sent 10 Bitcoins to Satoshi. He just wrote in Satoshi's Bitcoin address and said, I want to send 10 of these 50 Bitcoins to Satoshi. Um, and they both recorded that on their ledger, right? Because the bank ledger keeps everything. And so now the ledger knows Hal got these 50 Bitcoins and he sent 10 to Satoshi. And um, that, that's what happened on the first day. That, in essence, is what's been happening ever since on Bitcoin.
everybody who wants to, can, anybody who wants to, can download the software, join into this network, start racing to try to win new Bitcoins. And once you win Bitcoins, you can then spend those new Bitcoins. Now, anybody here could purchase Bitcoins. Today, it is essentially impossible to win Bitcoins through this computational race. But you can buy them from somebody who already has them. So if somebody already won them through a computational race, you can offer them today $300 for one of their Bitcoins. And you can create a Bitcoin address, and then they can send however many Bitcoins you purchase from them to you. As I mentioned, for the first two years that Bitcoin was in existence, this was happening. People's computers were racing to win Bitcoins. They were winning them. Their wallets were filling up. And yet, nobody really saw any reason to want these coins. Sure, they were scarce. Sure, there would only be 21 million of them created. But why do I want, what, what can I do with one of these things that I can't do with the dollar? I, I'll stick with the dollar. Um, the important turning point um, when people started thinking, oh, maybe it is useful to own a Bitcoin, was the invention of a site that most of you have probably heard of called the Silk Road. Um, this was a site created by a, a kid from Texas named Ross Ulbricht, um, who had an idea for um, essentially an eBay for all the things you can't buy on eBay. So heroin, uh, marijuana. Um, initially, there were some guns, uh, although that got pushed off pretty quickly. But uh, what, uh, what Ross Ulbricht realized was um, the key to being able to buy heroin from someone in Amsterdam is getting money to that person in, in Amsterdam. The person from Amsterdam can send you the heroin in a card and it'll probably get through the mail. That's not the problem. You can send them an email saying, I want it. That's not the problem. The problem is getting them the money. Because if you did that with your Visa card, Visa would probably notice and stop the transaction or report it. Um, so the problem was, how do you get money from, say, Texas to Amsterdam to pay for that heroin? What Ross Ulbricht realized is Bitcoin. Bitcoin's great. Each person has their wallet of money that nobody else, uh, the only way it's identified to you is by a series of letters and numbers. Um, you don't have to have your name attached to your account. It's just a letter, series of letters and numbers that are on this ledger that we've been talking about, the blockchain. And so anybody can send their Bitcoins across the world, and nobody is able to tell that it was me who sent it, and it was the guy in Amsterdam who got the money. And so the first day that Silk Road opened in 2011, Bitcoins were still worth almost nothing. The next day, the price of a Bitcoin, which at that point had just been kind of funny money, doubled in one day. Um, and there wasn't much you could actually buy on Silk Road at that point. Essentially, the only thing you could buy was uh, some magic mushrooms that Ross Ulbricht had grown in his cabin out in the woods. Um, and he sold out of those very quickly. He had a bunch of trash bags full of them. He sold out of them within a few weeks. And other people started joining in. A lot of people thought it was some kind of CIA setup or something. But vendors went on. They posted pictures of their marijuana and said, I'll send you this if you send me Bitcoins. And suddenly, people who wanted marijuana and heroin wanted Bitcoins because this was a much easier way to buy heroin or pot than the alternatives. Um, as some of you may or may not know. Um, and so this, this site grew, and, and new vendors came on and offered their wares for Bitcoin. 
And the people who wanted to buy those wares needed to get Bitcoin somewhere. And so they would go online and say, I'll give you $20 for, for 20 Bitcoins. And suddenly the price of Bitcoin started going up because everybody wanted these Bitcoins because you could do something with them. There was something really useful you could do with them that you couldn't do with PayPal or with uh, your, your credit card. And so the Silk Road uh, grew over the next two years into a, you know, essentially a, a global enterprise that was doing uh, millions of dollars of trade each day. Ross Ulbricht was getting a little cut from each transaction. And um, it made Bitcoin useful. It also showed, it proved essentially, that Bitcoin worked. You could send $200 to Amsterdam, to somebody's wallet in Amsterdam, and it was hard to track. It got there. It couldn't be hacked. The person's wallet was not hacked once it got there. The wallet was very secure. And the way that works is yet another complication. Um, but the, the simple reality was that you could send $200 from Texas to Amsterdam essentially instantly without anybody being any the wiser. Um, and that all happened on this ledger. It was all recorded. All the transactions went back to that blockchain, went back to that ledger, which uh, I, the one confusing thing as if I haven't already said 20 confusing things, is that that ledger, I said, has every transaction. So you'd think, well, why, doesn't you, why don't you just go look on there and see who spent, sent the money to Amsterdam? That would be simple, but the only thing that's on that ledger is the person's Bitcoin address, which looks like 36 letters and numbers. And if you don't know whose letters and numbers those are, you don't know who that person is. You, the police don't know where to go to find that person. Um, the person who has that wallet knows it, and the person who sent the money knows it because he sent the money there. But neither side has to identify themselves. All they have to give up is that Bitcoin address. Um, so, so the Silk Road was crucial in proving that Bitcoin essentially worked. Um, and not just for drug transactions, it proved that you could send money around the world and that real value could be transacted in this way. And what the Silk Road did was it got a lot of attention for Bitcoin. And a lot of it was drug users, but a lot of it was also people in Silicon Valley who heard about the Silk Road and realized, wait a minute, that, that's interesting. If, if somebody's sending $200 to Amsterdam without being tracked and and it, without paying any fees, that seems like it could be useful for other things, like maybe sending remittances to India. You know, instead of paying Western Union 10% to send money to my relatives in India, maybe I could send it through Bitcoin and not pay anything, and the money would show up immediately. And so Silicon Valley started getting involved. And um, there were a couple big kind of boosters for Bitcoin out in Silicon Valley. One of them, who I uh, talk about a lot in, the, in my book, is a guy named Wences Cazares, who's an Argentinian entrepreneur. And he came from a country with what was essentially a broken currency, the Argentine peso, where there was constantly inflation, where it was hard to get money in and out of the country. And he said, oh, here's this digital money that you can send around the world that the government isn't involved in, that banks aren't involved in, and maybe... I could uh, use this to uh, send money to my relatives in Argentina. And he started experimenting with it. Pretty soon he was selling it to everybody in Silicon Valley, saying, this is the future of money. This is what money is going to look like in the future. We don't need to rely on banks. 
We don't need to rely on Wall Street, central banks. You can just have your own money in your own wallet without needing permission from anybody else and send it to anybody else in the world, just like email. And um, Wences sold this to um, you know, everyone from Bill Gates to Jeff Bezos on down. He said, this is important. This is better than our existing financial system. And he got a lot of these people to buy a lot of Bitcoins and to make investments in Bitcoin companies, including eventually his own Bitcoin company. Um, and so Silicon Valley entered this race and realized this is, this is really nice. This is like PayPal, but PayPal with no fees and no limits. And if PayPal is valuable, how valuable might this be? Um, so that gave you another big boost, and the price of, of, of Bitcoin skyrocketed again. Um, I'll just skip to the last development in all of this, which is the rise of Wall Street's interest in this. Um, Wall Street recently, over the last year, I think a year ago probably, no Wall Street bank would admit that they wanted anything to do with Bitcoin. Now you have conferences on a weekly basis in which uh, Wall Street executives get together to talk about how this idea of Bitcoin and that ledger, the blockchain that I talked about earlier, how this might be the back end, this might be a new way to build the back end for the entire financial system. Rather than the banks relying on uh, Visa to process all their transactions, what if they created a, a blockchain ledger where they could record everything and where money could move instantly and nobody would have to pay any fees? Now, obviously, Wall Street, to some degree, is the one charging the fees, and so you might think, why would they want to do this? But Wall Street also has to rely on a lot of middlemen who charge Wall Street banks fees that they would like to do away with. And so they have begun looking at how they could use this technology to basically create a new way for money, for all sorts of money to move around instantly, much more cheaply than it does today. That brings us to back to today, where, as I mentioned, the World Economic Forum did this survey and uh, People, the, the executives uh, surveyed expected that, you know, the turning point for Bitcoin being used by consumers is going to be, sure, 12 years off, but it's going to happen, that this is eventually going to be the way money moves around, and that ordinary currency, currencies, dollars, uh, pound, the euro, are going to themselves be tracked on a blockchain where money will be fully auditable and everybody will have the records of it and everybody will be keeping everybody honest. You've been listening to the CUNY Lecture Series. For more, visit CUNY Radio online at cuny.edu radio. The CUNY Lecture Series is a production of the Office of University Relations.